This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. We all love those stories, don't we, about one person against the tide, one person against all odds, who stands in the breach and comes through victorious. Well, I came across one such story when I was looking at my children's school material some time ago. I came across the story of Horatius at the bridge. This is a story from ancient Rome. It's not myth or legend. It purportedly truly happened. At a time before Rome was an empire, when it was just a city-state, they received word that the enemy, we'll call them probably the Lombards would be a good guess, were coming to attack them. And at this time, the Tiber River was at flood stage. So the only way that they could get across and attack the city was this wooden bridge that stood near to the city of Rome. So Horatius rallied the people of the town. He said, get every axe and saw that you can find and begin hacking down that bridge. If they gain the bridge, we're lost. But if we can destroy the bridge before they get there, then we'll be saved. Meanwhile, he takes two companions, and they run to the far side of the bridge, and there they wait. And when the oncoming Lombard army arrives, they see three people ready to resist them. And so they fight. And against the cavalry and against the infantry, wave after wave, these three standing in the space of the bridge are saying, not on my watch. They know that if they fail, their city falls. And these three fight valiantly and they push back the army. Then Horatius looks over his shoulder and he sees, okay, the axes are doing their work. The bridge is about to collapse and be, uh, you know, tossed into the river. So he hollers to his two companions, fly, go. And they run back across the bridge to safety while he himself single-handedly stays and with an arrow in his eye continues to fight and hold back the enemy and they do not gain the bridge. Pretty soon the bridge is torn into pieces goes crashing away into the rush and roar of the flood of the Tiber. And Horatius, on the precipice, leaps backward into the water, and everyone assumes he's dead. After a minute of suspense, he comes up on the other side, and to the cheers not only of his own people, but even of the enemy who said, you gotta admire that, that was awesome. One man, knowing if I fail, my city falls. If you're not yet open to Rome, Romans chapter 5, I didn't even think it, we're studying Romans. Yeah, there we go. There's no connection there. Romans chapter 5, which is on page 942 in your sanctuary Bible. Starting at verse 12, we've got three paragraphs we'll be studying today, verses 12 through 21. And throughout these, this passage, we see the phrase, one man, crop up several times, sometimes referring to Adam, sometimes referring to Jesus Christ. So as an example, take a look at verse 15, uh, the second sentence in verse 15. But if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So this phrase, one man, and whenever you see it linked to sin, trespass, condemnation, it's referring to the one man, Adam. Adam's name appears twice, but the whole passage, he shows up. Uh, but 
in that phrase, one man, okay? So one man, Adam, or one man, Jesus Christ. And this is a fairly dense text, but let me summarize it for you. What Paul is saying is that because of Adam's sin, death reigned over all humankind. Because of Jesus' righteous act of sacrificial death on the cross, grace now reigns, leading to eternal life for all who believe in Jesus. Grace now reigns where sin and death used to reign. Grace is an important word here and, of course, throughout the rest of the Bible. What do we mean when we say grace? Sometimes we say it so often it, it loses the meaning or we forget the meaning. Well, mercy, simply put, has to do with when we don't get what we do deserve regarding punishment. Have mercy on me. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He's merciful. Grace is when we do get something good that we don't deserve. Okay, so mercy, we don't get the bad thing we deserve as a punishment. Grace, connected, related, we do get a good thing that we don't deserve. So grace is something we could never have bought, never have worked for, never could have earned. It's something we don't deserve. It's given as a gift. And in this passage also, the word abundant or abundance or abounding shows up three times always referring to grace. Like in verse 17, take a look there. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So abundant grace, free gift. So Jesus gives us a gift that is a grace, something we could not have earned, something we could not have deserved, but that is abundant means this. It's more wonderful than we could possibly have imagined. There's more to this gift of grace than we can even now comprehend. So it's not only something that we don't deserve, but yet we receive. It's also more wonderful and good and better than our wildest dreams. We who are born into death and destined for eternal death, it's punishment. Mercifully, we do not receive that punishment, and graciously, we receive the hope of everlasting life, to live forever with Jesus in His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which again is a place more wonderful than you can imagine. The very best things of this life are merely shadows of a hint, of a glimpse, of a taste, of a mere fraction of simply just beginning to experience the joy, the life, the freedom, the love, and the goodness of God that we will know in greater and greater fullness when we see Jesus face to face. So again, summary of this text, because of Adam's sin, death reigned. Because of Jesus' righteousness, grace now reigns, leading to that eternal life that I just described. Or we could put it yet another way. One mistake lost everything and blew it for everybody but one heroic moment brought it all back, and then some, and then some a lot. So again, I hope you've got your, your Bibles open. Fair warning, this is 
or warning may not be the right word, fair encouragement. This is a dense text. So the sermon today is going to be a teaching text, I know, a teaching sermon. We're going to work through this. So roll up your sleeves. I know it's the middle of the summer. Students, your brains are beginning to atrophy. We'll see what we can do about that this morning. <laughs> but pay attention. Zone in, all right? Don't zone out. So we begin at verse 12. And Paul begins talking about Adam, and we wonder, where did Adam come from? Why is he all of a sudden talking about Adam? Up to this point in the whole letter, five and a half chapters in, he hasn't mentioned Adam once. What's going on? Well, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is beginning to make a case. And in that case, he's essentially saying, we're all alike under sin, Jew and Gentile, no one is righteous. So that we are sinners is the case he's been making thus far. But what he hasn't told us is why. Why are we sinners? And in chapter 5, the section that was preached last week in verse 10, Paul is extolling the amazing uh, gospel, and he's saying, even when we were enemies, that's when Jesus saved us. And that is beautiful, that we were enemies, and he loved us and made us his children. But it still begs the question, why were we enemies to begin with? Who made us enemies? Did, did God make us enemies at the beginning? We'll come back to that question in a, in a little bit. So what made us enemies? If you're tracking along with the letter of Romans, if you're there in Rome and you're listening as they're reading it out loud, a new letter come from the Apostle Paul, oh great, let's listen to it. If you're tracking along and you're paying attention and you wonder why are we enemies, you might conclude it probably has something to do with the law. Because up to this point and afterwards, Paul's going to make pretty extensive arguments about the law, essentially saying there is no salvation through the law. So you might be thinking, oh, the, the law is probably the, par the problem. That's why we're enemies. Paul does take pains elsewhere, not in chapter 5, but elsewhere to clarify this is not due to a defect in the law. The law that God gave Moses to give to Israel is good. The defect was not in the law, but in the people who received it. They were unable to keep it faithfully. But it still begs the question, oh, well, all right, why are we defective? Did God make us defective? That would seem to be a pretty cruel thing to do. What made us enemies? Did God make us enemies? Did he create us for evil? It can feel like that sometimes. You look around you, you pick up the newspaper, you read about the awful things that are happening in the world, and most especially what gets you is probably what gets me. It's the awful things that people do to other people. Hearing about a submersible imploding and five people dying is really tragic and sad, but the thing that really gets you is when people are intentionally destroying the lives of other people. That wrecks us. We look around and we, we see that, or we look at our own lives and we wonder, if I'm going through some, something awful, why? That's a very common question to ask. Why am I going through this? Why does this happen at all? And not to be too simplistic, because that's a really big question that you've all wrestled with at some point in your life, if not right now, not to be too simplistic, but verses 12 to 14 answer that question. And it turns out 
God's not to blame. Adam is to blame. And sure enough, you and I have done our fair share of adding to the mess. But God is not to blame, although people often do blame Him and get angry at Him. And it just seems to be human instinct that when something goes wrong, we just look for someone to blame. And we're often trying to find the most powerful person in the room that we can pin the blame on and say, it's their fault. So we blame God, we get angry at Him, we ask Him why He doesn't get angry back. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't point the finger. He just says, I'll come and help. I'll make it better. I'll actually take responsibility for what I didn't do. And without bitterness and without resentment, I will clean up the mess that I did not make. So even though God is clear in the Scriptures, Adam is responsible, he's to blame in that regard, it's not a reproachful way that God regards Adam. He doesn't make Adam the scapegoat. In fact, God comes to the earth in Jesus Christ, taking on the flesh and the nature of Adam. And rather than making Adam the scapegoat, Jesus Christ makes himself the scapegoat. So let's go ahead now and read this section, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Continuing with verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Paul here is summarizing the Jewish teaching about Adam that may or may not have been known by his Roman audience, depending on how much they had access to the Old Testament or even knowledge of intertestamental writings and Jewish theology at the time. They may not have known this, and so he's telling them. And we learn some key things from these verses. One, death is not natural. Those who would say, well, death is natural, it's just part of the world that we live in, we would say, no, death is not natural. And in fact, the Bible calls death the last and greatest enemy to be destroyed. Death is not God's original design. He did not create you to die. You were created for life, not for death. It wasn't his plan in the beginning that you should live a few short years, give up your breath, and become dust forever. And so again, even when, and especially when you're looking at the mess of the world around you or the mess in your own life, cling to this truth. You were created to live, not to die. You were created for good things, not for bad. So the first thing we learn is that death is not natural. It wasn't there in the beginning. It came in 
Second, we learn that death comes from sin. So sin is like the seed. Death is like when that seed takes root, becomes a tree, and bears fruit. The final end of that process that begins in sin culminates in death. Sin is the cause. Wait, which is first, cause or effect? Yeah, sin is the cause. Death is the effect. Just making sure you're tracking with me, because did I say we're going to work hard this morning? Okay. This makes sense when we think about it, because an individual sin is when we choose for a moment to step away from God's plan for us. I know what he says is right, but I want to do this because we're believing all the lies that it will be better or it'll be fine in the end. We step away from God for a moment. We choose our own way. That's sin. Death is when we step away or are separated from God, who is life itself. But now that separation becomes permanent. So death comes from sin. Death comes from Adam. That's the third thing that we learn from these verses here, that death comes from Adam. Our first father. But then Paul does go on to say, then death spread to all. And he adds, because all have sinned. Continuing in verse 13 and 14, now he goes back to the question of the law. Again, did did law bring sin into the world? Given Paul's arguments elsewhere in the book, you might think so, but his answer is no, because there was sin in the world even before there was the law of Moses. And even though it's true that those people who lived prior to the law are not as responsible, right? At the end of verse 13, he says, sin is not counted where there is no law. So even though they're not as responsible, yet he goes on to say, beginning of verse 14, yet, on the other hand, or even so, they still died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, to the time of the giving of the law. So now what is meant by the latter half of verse 14? Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Well, again, there was a period between Adam and Moses, after Adam, but before the law was given through Moses. And in this period, sin was not counted in the same way it was counted after the law was given because they didn't know. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the commands. Now, Adam was given a command. He was told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he had a clear command, and he chose to disregard that. He intentionally disobeyed. So that's why he is more like those who came after the law, who are also given commands. So Adam had a command. He disobeyed. Those who came after him, though, and before the law was given, had no commands other than just their internal sense of right and wrong. So when they were doing wrong, There was no law to point to to say, here's why you're guilty. Now, we should qualify that and say, but remember back in chapter 1, Paul does say about the pagan Gentile nations 
that even though they did not have the law, they did have a knowledge of God just by looking at the world he created and realizing there is a creator that we are to worship and that they rejected God and began to worship idols. And so Paul says they are still responsible for that. So in the end, he's saying those who did not live under the law but came before it, they're not as culpable because there was no law, but they're not completely innocent. They still sinned, and more importantly, death still reigned in that period. Now, why does Adam serve as a type of the one who was to come? And the one who was to come refers to Jesus. What does it mean that Adam is a type? Well, the word type means pattern, figure, template. In what way was he a type? Well, in the first way, like we were just talking about, regarding the commandments, Adam had received a command, and he chose to disregard it. Likewise, Jesus knew the commands. He knew the law. He knew what was expected to him, of him. Therefore, the stakes were high. If he failed and he sinned at any point, game over. So Jesus is like Adam in that he is aware of what is before him, what he is to do, what success looks like, what failure looks like. Jesus is aware. He's not ignorant. So in that regard, Jesus is like Adam. But that's also why Jesus can succeed, because he follows the pattern of Adam. Second reason that Jesus follows the pattern of Adam. Adam was the father of the human race, and therefore its head. The Bible says that Jesus is now the head of the church. But it's also true that along with being head over the church, Jesus is the head over all the human race. Why? The Bible teaches that Israel, the nation of Israel, is the head of all the nations. And so Jesus, because he's anointed as Messiah, becomes head of the nation that is head over all the nations. Therefore, Jesus is head of all the nations of the earth and of all the human race. Why does this matter? We need to talk about headship here for a little bit, not to dwell on it too much, but because if we don't understand this, we don't understand some key ideas about this passage. You might have a couple of questions. One, where's Eve in all of this? Eve is not mentioned. Didn't she sin first? Second question, and why am I who live thousands of years after Adam, why am I so deeply impacted and affected by what he did? What do I have to do with Adam, and what does he have to do with me? I mean, I get how, as we live in community, we affect one another, and my actions affect yours and yours mine in a way, but what does someone who lived 6,000 years ago have to do with me today? Why does his action affect me so much? And the answer to those two questions is the same. It does have to do with headship. The Bible teaches that headship is a real thing and that it matters. So that's why Eve, though she did sin first, the Bible doesn't teach that sin came into the world and death through sin through Eve. Even though sin was in the world, even if momentarily, sin was in the world before Adam brought it into the world. But what does the text tell us? Eve is not ultimately responsible. Adam is because what the head does affects everybody else. That is why you were born into sin and death. That is why you were made a subject 
of the kingdom of death without asking it, without choosing that. You were born into that because of the sin of your first father who was the head of the human family. Now Jesus, as head of the church and the rightful ruler of the whole human race, is in a position as head to reverse course, to fix the mess that his predecessor made. So if you've ever wondered, why does Adam's action have such a profound effect on me and everybody else that I know? Well, that's why. So husbands, fathers, take note how you live your life and how you lead your family really matters. Now, continuing on to the second paragraph, verses 15 through 17. The second paragraph, Paul's going to contrast and say, here are the ways that Adam is not like Jesus, and the result of Adam's sin is not like the result of Jesus's uh, righteousness. Okay, so it's a contrast. There's a difference. Then the third paragraph, starting at verse 18, he's going to say, and here's how Adam and Jesus are similar. Okay, so with the second paragraph, verses 15 to 17, as I read through this, listen for the word grace. It appears five times. Listen for the word free gift. It appears five times also. And listen for versions of the word abound, which will appear three times and always pointing and referring to grace. Let's read together, starting at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Again, he's, he's drawing a contrast. How are they different? What's different about them? Well, in what they lead to. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Condemnation is a word meaning prison. Judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification, free from the prison. That's what it means. You're set free. Verse 17, so for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what he's contrasting is what comes from Adam versus what comes from Jesus. And from Adam come sin instead of righteousness, what's wrong instead of what's right, condemnation instead of justification, meaning that prison versus being set free. Ultimately, what comes from Adam is death. What comes through Christ is life. So that's the contrast. But then he moves on to the third paragraph, verse 18. Now he's going to focus on in what way are they similar in this regard, that the one action of Adam and the one action of Jesus affected many. One action. That's the similarity now starting in verse 18, so let's read this together. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, and there he's referring to the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience 
the many will be made righteous. One act of Adam's disobedience plunges the world into darkness. One act of Jesus on the cross is the difference between life and death, between being set free or remaining in the prison forever. God made you for life, not for death. He made you for joy, not sorrow. God made you for love, not for emptiness, loneliness, or bitterness. That's, that's God's original plan. That's His desire for you. But now listen to this. You must choose. As I said earlier, you didn't have a choice to inherit the sin and the sinful nature and death from your first father Adam. You did not have a choice about that. You do have a choice whether to go from that inheritance to a new inheritance, to a new family, or not. That choice is yours. Whether to belong to Jesus and his family or not. And the starting point is this, for you to admit that along with Adam, you also are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And then you believe in Jesus, and you trust in his power to change courses, to redeem awful things, and to clean up messes. And let me just say this, for any of you who have suffered because of a husband or a father who created a mess and never apologized, never owned it, never acknowledged it, come under the headship of Jesus and learn what it means to be truly loved and cared for. That invitation is for you, and nothing can keep you from that if you want it. It's good to follow him and to be under his leadership. God is so good. He's so abundantly gracious. He wants to do good to you and for you if you trust in him. He didn't give up on Adam and his descendants. He took on the cost himself. In this passage, we see the word free gift. Well, it was not free for him, free for you and me. But it cost Jesus dearly. It cost him everything. But he paid that price for the love of you. Like Horatius, who single-handedly stood against the enemy, knowing that if he failed, his city would fall. So too, Jesus single-handedly resisted every temptation, lived the perfect life. Then he bore our sin, meaning he took on the punishment, every punishment for every sin that should have been ours. He took it into himself on the cross, and finally, he leapt into the raging river torrent of death and emerged on the other side victorious so that he could offer you clean passage over the rushing waters. He could offer you the gift of eternal life. Receive this good gift, the gift of his grace, and then go and be gracious to those in your life, to those who don't deserve it, whether a spouse or a child or a parent or a coworker or whoever. Be gracious as God has been gracious with you. And don't give up on others when they let you down because God didn't give up on you when you let him down. And above all, believe in Jesus. Trust in his power to change courses, to redeem awful things, 
and to clean up messes. Amen.